0: Welcome, oh you marvellous happy warriors. This show is for you. This is not a show for crooks, creeps, clowns, or cranks. It's not a show for misleaders, malcontents, and miseries. It's not a show for frauds, fakes, and phonies. It's not a show for drifters, dreamers, or derelicts. No, it's a show for happy warriors. And happy warriors are those of us who are firmly fixed and focused on our five Fs. We don't waste time on entertainment. We don't waste time dreaming or drifting. No, we focus on nurturing relationships with our finances, with our families, with our faith, with our friends, and yes, with our own physical fitness as well. That's what a happier warrior is. Somebody who is joyfully engaged in the God-given struggles of life to improve our families to build and improve our finances, to try and develop that little-known human need, but such an important subconscious need it is, and that is for a relationship with God, a relationship with friends, so easy to neglect, and of course, easiest of all, to neglect our health, our physical well-being. That needs work as well. And so a happy warrior is somebody who happily accepts the challenges of these fights and struggles, because it's not easy to build and grow a family. And it's not easy to build and grow your finances. And it isn't easy to build and grow a relationship with your faith, and it's not easy to maintain relationships with friends and to grow them and build them, and no, it's certainly not easy to improve your own physical fitness, but we happy warriors, we love that challenge, we relish that challenge. Now, um, it's, um, uh, it's been a week and I'm recording and preparing this for you um, in the uh, uh, middle of May or a little bit uh, past the middle of May of 2021. And uh, it's, it's been a week of uh, military turbulence in Israel and Gaza. And more interestingly, in a way, It's been a week of um, widespread attacks on Jews in London, in Montreal, in Toronto, in Paris, in in Germany, in Sweden, and around the United States as well. Now, most of these attacks are being perpetrated by Islamic immigrants or their children um, who came in and were welcomed into these countries and were given a home in the western society that they sought because presumably they preferred to live in a society where violence was not the normal and average and accepted way of resolving disputes And yet it would appear that in spite of having left the Islamic paradises of the world for the evil Western countries in which so many Muslims have settled, they can't wait to do the same thing here and there. They can't wait to convert these evil Western regimes into replicas Of the Islamic paradises that they left. And so, yes, that they attacked Jews um, in so many cities around the world this week um, is perfectly understandable. It's perfectly normal and perfectly natural given what we know about this type of philosophy and this type of approach and the type of people who adhere to these beliefs because beliefs do shape our actions i want to tell you Uh, no matter whether you believe in secular fundamentalism or whether you believe in christianity or islam or judaism um, beliefs do shape our actions there's no question about that and so i'm not terribly surprised uh, I told my congregation more than 20 years ago that the uh, aggressive solicitation of um, of uh, immigrants to the United States from some countries that uh, came about as a result of the 1965 Immigration Reform Act would result ultimately and eventually in the same attacks on Jews that used to happen in uh, Um, pre-World War II Russia and uh, throughout Europe and of course more recently in the Middle East in Israel. So none of that surprises me and I'm not going to waste any time on today's show talking about that but what does surprise me to some extent is how quickly the Democratic Party and the left-wing radicals who are exerting Greater and greater influence in America's Democratic Party um, are themselves adopting, uh, encouraging words and uh, and influencing the attacks on Jews. Now that is really interesting, and so I thought I would take no more than three minutes on this question of so you know why do they hate Jews? Why? And I'm not talking about Muslims. With them, it is a, a direct uh, theological instruction in Islamic belief to attack the Jew no matter where he hides. Right, I get that. So if if you believe in the Quran, you need to attack Jews. And you also need to attack Christians, by the way. Uh, that, is, that is perfectly clear. But what's a little harder to understand is, you know, why do the... Uh, Uh, Democrats in Congress, so many of them, uh, why do they hate Jews? Uh, Why does even a nominally ethnic Jew like um, uh, Senator Schumer, why does he hate Judaism and Christianity? And he does. Uh, He has remained conspicuously silent while Jews are being attacked. And um, I think Part of the answer was said kind of eloquently by a friend of mine and a colleague, Rabbi Cardozo, um, who used these words. He said, "They spit on the Jews, not because the Jews are Jesus killers, but because they are Jews because they are Jesus givers." In other words, Jesus was himself obviously Jewish, and it was through. Judaism that Jesus began to bring monotheism to millions of people around the world who became Christians, and so uh, uh, that's kind of interesting. And what does that mean? Well, the way I put it is that to the barbarian, virtue is an ugly blemish. Um, You know, I I was not a a good child in elementary school. I I was I was a terrible child in elementary school and um and I assure you I have not exerted one ounce of effort and I haven't spent one minute trying to figure out what aspect of my childhood how was I traumatized by my parents that no I was just plain and simple I was a rotten kid in elementary school I sought attention by uh, pranks um I tried to become popular by being naughty uh and I can remember back, you know, I remember which of the kids I really disliked, all the good kids. Because to the barbarian, virtue is an ugly blemish. I didn't like the kids who always did their homework. They showed me up, I guess. I didn't like the kids who uh, paid attention in class. I didn't like the kids who had a polite and cordial relationship with teachers. Because to the barbarian, virtue is an ugly blemish. And virtue was brought into the world on Mount Sinai, and subsequently popularized to the world by Jesus. Um, it's it's really important to to note, and 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 this is um, this is me emphasizing that the main opposition, the main hostility, the reason that people mostly hate the Jews, is because of Jewish values and Jewish culture, not because of the Jewish race or Jewish biology. No, it's because of the values and the culture. So how can somebody who is ethnically Jewish, uh, like so many Democrats in Congress, uh, how can they also be anti-Semitic? Well, they don't go around beating up Jews or anything, but they hate the values and culture of Judaism, it's a, and by extension Christianity, and there was a book called Foundations of the Nineteenth Century, written by a man called Chamberlain, and uh, now I'm quoting his words: "I cannot help shuddering at the portentous, irremedi- irremediable, sorry, badly pronounced. Uh, I cannot help shuddering at the portentous, irremediable mistakes the world made." in accepting the traditions of this wretched little nation as the basis of its belief. He's talking about Jews. He hated the Jews for their monotheism and moral values, which prevented the natural human being from possessing unrestricted freedom. It's all it is, my friends. And so, you know, in that sense, sort of anti-Semitism doesn't worry me. I actually have never in my life ever accused anyone of being an anti-Semite because I actually don't even know what the definition of the phrase is. I, I'm, I'm very, very cautious with phrases like anti-Semitism or, for that matter, also racist because I don't fully understand what they are, how you define them. And you do need a specific definition. It's not good enough to say, oh, well, I know you're an anti-Semite. Because if you're going to tar somebody with what can be a life-destroying uh, epithet, like racist or anti-Semite, then it needs to be very specifically defined so that the person who is thus accused can defend himself. It's, I mean, without that, there is no legal system. There is there is no hope. And so... Uh, um, and, and so I'm not, I'm not uh, using the phrase anti-Semitism at all, but, uh, but Chamberlain wrote in this book of his about the 19th century, I cannot help shuddering at the portentously remediable mistake the world made in accepting the traditions of this wretched little nation, Jews, as the basis of its belief. so it's just really important you know he 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 didn't hate us because of uh, the biology he didn't hate us because of our long noses or he didn't hate us because we you know a lot of us live in new york he hated the jews because of monotheism and moral values which prevented natural human beings from possessing unrestricted freedom basically morality came into the world and uh, I'm quoting again from Chamberlain, the Jew came into our world and spoiled everything with his concept of sin, his law, and his cross. You see, his cross meaning because he, he attributes Christianity ultimately to Judaism. The Jew came into our world and spoiled everything with his concept of sin, his law, and his cross now you might think to yourself you know that's 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 pretty far-fetched i mean honestly um you know no that's why the world hates jews and uh it's 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 kind of important to also note that this is not just an obscure um academic writing a relatively obscure book foundations of the 19th century no this is widely spread and widely understood and um I'll quote you something from the Washington Post, um, and although it's going to be about Hillary Clinton because they're writing about her 2016 campaign, it applies equally to the Biden-Harris administration, and the Washington Post uh, quotes Hillary Clinton during her campaign against uh, Donald Trump in 2016. She was addressing women in the world, a Women in the World Summit conference, and now I'm quoting, quoting Hillary Clinton deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Really? Religious beliefs have to be changed? Yes, yes, that's what Hillary Clinton believes, and that's what Biden-Harris believes, and that's what Charles Schumer believes. Hillary Clinton clearly believes that if she became president, it would be her job not to respect the views of religious Christians or Jews, but to force them to change their beliefs. The enemy is Judeo-Christian beliefs and culture. That, my friends, is what lies at the heart of it all. But uh, that's Only a a comment I throw in because it's impossible not to notice um, the extraordinary and unprecedented attacks I mean, a a group of uh, Palestinians pulled up at a restaurant in Los Angeles, jumped out and said, who are the Jews? I mean, that was, you know, really reminiscent of Nazi Germany, and then proceeded to inflict uh, physical damage on the, the people who stood up and said, we're Jewish, which I'm happy to say a number of men did do. But, and as I say, that, uh, that Muslims attack Jews doesn't surprise me in the least. I don't have any mystery in my mind about that. I get it, right? You have strong theological beliefs from your holy books. I get it. Um, not happy about it, but I know I have to live with it or die with it. But um, why are people like Hillary Clinton and, and many other people who are now in Congress? Why are they becoming so tolerant? of physical assaults on Jews and the answer is very simple it's very simple to the barbarian moral virtue is an ugly blemish and I'm not saying all Jews are morally virtuous I'm not even saying I'm morally virtuous Um, no I'm not saying that at all I'm saying that Judaism along later with Christianity brought moral virtue into the world I think it's safe to say that if there was no Judaism, there probably wouldn't be a Christianity. I don't know what God's plans would have been, but um, but these people who blame Judaism for bringing moral virtue into the world and, to quote Chamberlain, spoiling everything, uh, yeah, I get it. I, I, I totally do get it. That is why the world hates the Jews, and that's what we see going on. Uh, Islamic hatred of Jews different situation that's theological and in a way you could say the other is theological also because the theology of secular fundamentalism says that people are just like animals and in the same way you don't blame a wolf for attacking a sheep and you don't blame a dog for chasing a cat these do not reflect moral failings in wolves and dogs no It's what wolves and dogs do, and the religion of secular fundamentalism wants to say men are exactly the same. There are things that men do, and that's all there is to it. There certainly is no basis for calling any actions of human beings immoral. If anything, they are sick, and they need psychiatric treatment, which will be paid for by Obamacare and uh, its subsequent uh, descendants, and so uh, that is how it goes, but now let's put all of that aside, I just just didn't think I could do a podcast uh, late in May 2021 without talking about a little bit of what's going on, but uh, what I really want to get back to is uh, the things you really care about, the things that really make a difference in your life, the politics, the war, all of that. I mean, we have to know about it. We have to do what we can to protect ourselves. But the things you really care about, your families, your finances, your physical health, your friendships, and your faith. And so many truths emerge sometimes from simple questions, right? If it takes one man one hour to dig a certain ditch, how long will it take two men to dig the same ditch? Hint, the correct answer is not half an hour, right? If it takes one man one hour to dig a certain ditch, how long would it take two men to dig the same ditch? And the answer is not half an hour. The answer is that depending on whether they help or hinder one another, there are two possible right answers, either more than, half, more than an hour or less than half an hour right? Either the two men are going to hinder each other, and they're going to get in each other's way. It's going to take longer than an hour that the one man could have done it by himself. You know, how many times have you heard people say, listen, you know, without your help, I could have done this in half the time. That's what they're talking about. Um, But uh, the other possibility is that they are committed to working with each other, and they enjoy one another, and they love the project they will accomplish the job in much less time than half an hour. If this was purely materialistic, if this was simply two bulldozers doing the job instead of one, yeah, that would probably take half the time. But if two collaborative, communicating, cooperating men are doing it together, they'll do it in much less than half the time. In other words, the numbers, when it comes to human magic numbers are not linear it's exponential and um, again you know anybody who uh, who has a family or is part of a family you've seen this you know if if a family has a project let's say let's say for some reason or another dad says uh, Sunday morning after church we're all gonna uh, we're all gonna throw in our efforts and we're gonna clean up the yard all together if everybody's grumbling and complaining and grousing and miserable, it takes a long time and it even seems to take more. But if it's a communicative pr- process and everybody collaborates and cooperates, it becomes joyful and the job is done in far less time than it could have been done by simply dividing the job by the number of people involved. It it goes quicker. It goes better. If... Um, you know, if if, uh, if one person can come up with five really good ideas, let's say you've got a business problem, let's say you've got a family problem, and you sit down by yourself in a room without any distraction, and you you try and figure out five different solutions, and it takes you an hour, you come up with five different solutions. If you sat down with another person and you brainstormed it, does that mean you'd come up with ten good solutions in the same hour? No! you'd come up with much more than 10. You'd come up with maybe 20 because it works exponentially. Now, where do I know this from? And this may not necessarily be of interest to some of you uh, because my source is ancient Jewish wisdom in the Bible. But many of you listening are completely indifferent to where I know this information from, all you're interested in is the information and how it can improve your five F's, and that's also okay, that's fine, right, you 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 need make no statements of faith to enjoy this show or to benefit from this show, not at all, this show is about how the world really works, and uh, that's what I tell you, so um, for those of you who are interested, you might want to take a look at a verse in uh, the a biblical verse in the book of <clears throat> in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter twenty six, verse eight. And here's what it says: Five from among you will pursue one hundred; one hundred from among you will pursue ten thousand. An ancient Jewish wisdom teaches that says, "Look, God could have ended the verse." After the word 100, the verse could have just read, five from among you will pursue 100. Well, that's a pretty nice blessing, right? It could have ended there. It tells you that when you have your enemies, if you are following the path of the Lord, you don't have to worry because five of you will chase 100 of the enemy. Well, that's pretty good, right? 20 to 1, that's nice. Why does the verse carry on to say, and 100 from among you will pursue 10,000? Well, you see, the first thing to note is that the ratio of five will chase 100 is not the same as 100 will chase 10,000, right? The ratio of five to 100 means one of you, each one of you will will deal with 20, that's five to 100 but 100 to 10,000 mean the ratio there is 100. It means each of you will deal with 100. So why is it that when there's five of you, you can only chase 100, but if there's 100 of you, you can pursue 10,000 because collaborative and uh, cooperative human achievement is is not linear, it's exponential. Five people... Can achieve a certain amount a hundred people don't just achieve 20 times more than five people a hundred people achieve a hundred times more it's it's quite amazing but it's absolutely true and so the more connected you are the better off you are in all of these things <clears throat> and one of the the great truths about family is that it is our most basic and elemental way of connecting with people, right? That's what a baby first starts learning, how to connect and communicate and collaborate ultimately. That's in family. And then friendship. You start realizing that you build a network of friends, and there is huge strength in that. And then you discover Financial activity, and you see that you build relationships and you derive enormous benefit. The incredible blessing of financial abundance comes from those relationships. Oh, yeah, now there is no limit to the power that emerges from connecting. Now, connection is obviously hugely important, and uh, many of the lessons that are most effective in advancing your interests in terms of your family, your finances, and your fitness and friendship, Uh, most of these lessons, as I say, emerge from the uh, understanding of the Bible through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom. So an example I just gave you was, of course, Leviticus chapter 26 verse 8, where the second part of the sentence didn't even have to be there, and once it was there, how come the numbers don't match up, right? The numbers are are strikingly out what's going on. Well, we understand the exponential effect of adding people to a project, and um, in in terms of connection, Um, I have taught in my Scrolling Through Scripture program, which is an online verse-by-verse through the Bible uh, course for those people who are interested in actually drilling down to the source, Um, I give for an an example, I show that in the first 34 verses of Genesis, um, which is essentially the entirety of the story of creation or if you like, the first story of creation, 34 verses. Each and every one of those verses, with the exception of number one, because the first one is, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. But everyone from there starts with with the word and. Now, I don't know, I haven't checked that that's necessarily true in the English translation, but in the Hebrew text, every one of those verses begin with the word and. Now, throughout the five books of Moses, the number of, the percentage of verses that begin with and is about 55%. And yet, in the first story of creation, that first 34 verses, it's like 97% of the verses start with the word and. And I teach this um, in, in greater depth in the online course, Scrolling Through Scripture. And I explain among many other things, I explain that this is part of God's emphasis on connection right from the very beginning. It's and 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 and. In other words, everything connected to everything else, or in other words, a holistic view of reality and the implications of that for your physical health the implications of that for your financial success, the implications of that for building and growing a successful happy family, uh, building a successful and happy marriage as part of that family, all of this depends on fully understanding the implications of connection. And um, again, for those of you who are interested in probing a little more deeply into the foundational principles of how that works and seeing for yourself the timeless truths and embedding them within your own soul that you will be able to apply them flawlessly and effectively, uh, just go and read up about scrolling through scripture. You go to my website, rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com, and um, You uh, simply look for online courses, and in the online courses you'll find scrolling through scripture. Now, I I did tell you earlier why the world hates the Jews, but uh, what I'm interested in now is something really much more important, and that is, why is it that Jews are disproportionately successful with money, and is it restricted to Jews? Well, we're talking about scrolling through scripture, we're talking about the Bible, so it's not surprising that Jews are always called the people of the book. What book are they talking about? They're talking about a book called the Bible, and it was a book which had enormous impact on shaping all of Western civilization, and uh, maybe it has something to do with why the whole world flocks to Western civilization, right? Um, I've uh, pointed out in the past that all the people that have drowned in the Mediterranean, tens of thousands of them, by the way, right? Really, 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 uh, like at the rate of about five or 6,000 officially a year, not counting those that drowned and never got found. But um, uh, w- how many of them were trying to get from Africa to Italy or from Africa to France And how many of them were trying to get from Europe to Africa? Right? All of them were trying to go one way. Why? Well, that's easy. People say it's because the money is in Europe. Yes, I know. The point is why is the money in Europe? Why is it that Arabs are flocking from all around the world to France and to Sweden and to Germany and to the United States? How many people do you know who are waiting for an immigration visa to Saudi Arabia? Not a lot of people. So what is it about the West that made it succeed? Well, the answer is that it's only something called the Bible, which embedded within the minds and the souls and the hearts of the Western Europeans, um, gave them a view of human relationships, a view of relationships with money and property, a view of relationships with God, an understanding of property rights, an understanding of the spirituality of money, an understanding of the importance of the rule of law, and by the way, law enforcement, right? That is a development of Western civilization. And all of these things, derived from a Judeo-Christian Bible worldview, totally sculpted the way that those cultures emerge into successful societies. Africa never had such a thing. That's not because their skins are black. It's because they never ever had access to the Bible until the 19th century, when along came British missionaries and totally transformed countries like Ghana and Nigeria. It was Christianity that did it, you know, and today a little exercise which I do for people quite often is take a a map of the continent of Africa and overlay on it a mylar map of the centers of economic success and political stability, and you will find that if you then also superimpose a mylar of the most Christian areas in Africa— you won't be shocked to find that it works. Northern Nigeria is Muslim. Southern Nigeria is more Christian. There's a marked difference in life between those two parts of that big country. And um, you've got to just recognize it. If Bible-based Christianity can shape entire countries, then it stands to, uh, to reason that it can shape individuals also. That's the important thing that over the last few hundred years, cultures that were exposed to the Bible became more successful, provided that is that you agree that more successful means affluent, wealthy, medically advanced, technologically advanced, where life is longer and healthier, where the currency is stable, and where the politics is stable. Now, if those things are important to you, you'd be crazy to ignore the Bible. Um. It's, it's going back 16 years, but June the 2nd, 2005, the Wall Street Journal ran a fascinating story interviewing certain Chinese government officials and, and saying, you know, officially the Chinese Communist Party position is hostile to Christianity, but uh, you guys are allowing the emergence of uh, at least a hundred million or more Christians, with more congregations and churches popping up in people's living rooms and in people's homes, we don't get it. And uh, the Chinese response to the Wall Street Journal was, We're doing it for economic reasons. They get it. It's really pretty obvious. Now, those of you who have already downloaded your free ebook, that Susan Lappin and I prepared, wrote, and prepared for you called The Holistic You, and you can get that for free. If you just go to the website, we'll be happy to send it to you, and um, that is uh, where you will start learning about how finance and family are strongly linked together. Now, family we tend to think of, you know, you think family, you think big, nice, happy family. But when I say family, what I'm really talking about, when you get right down to the basics of it, family is male-female relationships. Because, as I like to point out, that the only reason that you have brothers and sisters, and the only reason that you have cousins, and the whole reason you can get together on Thanksgiving with uncles and aunts and cousins and siblings is because many years ago, grandpa and grandma's eyes met across a room, sparks flew between them, and they later, in the fullness of time, found ecstasy in one another's arms, and that, that was how the family began and, you know, that is how you have begun or will begin your family, that's what it's really all about. It's male-female relationships at its elemental core. And so, finance and family very closely connected in this sense. And so, obviously, if uh, you are part of a society or part of a culture that uh, blurs the distinction between male and female, and that tries to indoctrinate its population with the insidious lie that men and women are basically exactly the same, and that it's really important to stop women from being wives and mothers and homemakers, and turn them into factory workers and office workers, and it's really important to stop women thinking that they're happiness and fulfillment is found in raising children and instead get them to join the military and then adapt and adjust the entire military structure to make it possible for women who are shh here's a big secret women are physically weaker than men that's not to say that there are not the occasional six-foot huge woman who is very strong, and the occasional small guy who's not. But on the average, you all know exactly what I'm talking about, and you all know it's true when I say men are much stronger than women. But if you want to insist that women would be wrong to want to be a wife and a mother, and they should want to become a fire lady, fire man, by a person, or they would want to become a policeman or a sold policewoman or a soldieress, um, then we must change the standards to make it possible. You see, we got to make sure that one day when somebody's on the fifth floor of a burning building and up comes a hook and ladder, and the ladder is mechanically propelled up to the fifth floor window and you're waiting to be rescued and there's this terrifying drop and there's a three foot gap between the window and the top of the ladder and you need help and you suddenly see a fire person coming up the ladder you're so grateful and then you look and see and it's a 110 pound pretty little fire lady and uh you well you're a 210 pound guy and you really need help um you mustn't complain Because the greater good of blurring the distinction between men and women has been achieved. And so uh, this is just how it works. People sometimes say to me, well, how do you know there's really a difference between men and women? Well, anybody who um, is beyond puberty and has lived a few years and hasn't been indoctrinated by an American university uh, knows that to be the case. As a matter of fact, um, I I ran something myself a number of years ago that was very interesting. I um, I started exploring the number of female teachers who've had affairs, sexual affairs, with high school boys. It was weird. It was absolutely weird. It's a huge number. It's it's horrifyingly easy. Um, to get you know it's public information they get charged and uh, and in some cases they get punished and um, and there's this huge number now look just using your own common sense this is weird right a lot of these women are married and they have an affair with a high school there's something weird about that right this is not normal behavior yes i think there is such a thing as normal <clears throat> this is not natural behavior. There's something going on there, right? It's something strange, very strange. Um, and, and many, many of uh, of these teachers who have been uh, arrested for uh, improper behavior at schools with male students, many of them are good looking. They're attractive. Well, it's the whole thing is bizarre. Now you just use your common sense and say, if I hadn't told you this, do you think there are more cases of male teachers misbehaving with female high school students or more cases of female teachers misbehaving with male high school students? And, uh, you know, you you wouldn't think very long and you'd say, look, it's got to be mostly men with female students. You know, high school teenage girls... Uh, They get a crush on a good-looking young teacher, male teacher, and uh, the teacher lacks sufficient um, willpower and uh, devotion to to duty. He finds it irresistible, right? A nubile 17-year-old girl throws herself at him. This is, you know, perfectly normal, perfectly natural. We see this all the time. And uh, he succumbs. Obviously, that happens. Happens a lot. But the ones that make the newspaper are the other way around. Why? Because boys and girls are different. Right? And uh, guys know right, that when a high school student has a physical relationship with the hot English teacher, <clears throat> there's nothing on earth that can stop him telling his friends. There is no force on earth that can stop him from boasting about it it, it it's not possible <laughs> you know that and so obviously it leaks out and uh, the teacher comes to grief but when it is a young woman high school student and she is seduced by a high school teacher by a male teacher yes And yes, she probably gave him every uh, welcome and every encouragement, maybe, regardless. After that's happened, does she go around telling anybody? No. She feels embarrassed by it. Uh, There's more of a modesty factor. She's much less likely to talk of her sexual exploits than her male... um, schoolmate is is going to men and women are different in this respect and and this reality that although obviously many more men misbehave with many more male teachers misbehave with female students than female teachers do with male students you don't hear about it as much for obvious reasons boys boast girls don't it's it's just a simple reality And so understanding male-female differences, that they exist and that they are real, is hugely important to the structure of society and also to, yes, successful relationship with finances. That's right. Hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. So let's take a careful look For the next few minutes that we have available for us to spend time together today. Let's take a look at five ways in which the process of finance and the process of family are actually the same, the way in which they really are strongly connected. Look, what is the most creative thing any human being can do? And the answer, I think most assuredly, is making a baby. There is nothing more creative because that baby you've created is in itself ultimately going to be capable of all kinds of acts of creativity, right? Uh, 65 years ago, uh, there was a man called William Gates living in Seattle, and he and his wife, Mary, had a baby, and they called him Bill. And Bill later on dropped out of Harvard and created Microsoft and had all kinds of amazing achievements uh, until, to, I'm sure, the great disappointment of his parents, who remained married until they died, um, The uh, Bill Gates went and wrecked the family side of things. But uh, <clears throat> um, Susan wrote a Susan's Musings on that topic, which is on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com and, uh, for those of you who want to look and see why divorce is not private, she was commenting on the fact that, uh, what, uh, celebrities whose marriages break up always says, we, uh, we, we, we would be grateful for to be granted privacy at this time, as if divorce is a private matter. It isn't. It isn't. The damage it inflicts on society in general makes it a very public matter. But anyway, that's what Susan wrote about. But, um, The act of creating a baby is not only the most creative thing you can do, but it is also the paradigm for creativity. It is the model. It is the blueprint for creativity. And so everything that is true about in its its, uh, philosophical sense or pure sense, everything that's true about making a baby is also true about effecting a business transaction. And let me give you, or in other words, making money, if you like. Uh, So making money is incredibly creative. Making a baby is the ultimate in creativity. Those two actions have a lot in common. Um, Five, there are five specific uh, timeless truths, as I call them about it. Timeless truth number one is that um, anything truly creative, you can never do by yourself. It always needs one other person, maybe more than one other, but it's basically one other person. Um, You know, the stories you hear about artists who lock themselves in the attic and turn out masterpieces never happened. It's a total myth. It's a lie. Artists who do isolate themselves from humanity never turn out masterpieces. They turn out maudlin, self-indulgent nonsense. Creativity desperately depends upon interaction with other human beings. That's the basic lesson. The ultimate act of creativity by yourself? <laughs> no, not really. Okay, second timeless truth. The person you interact with has to be different from you. Now that we've established that to be truly creative, you have to be involved with at least one other person, that person has to be different from you. What's the business implication of that? It's very it's very profound. A deal takes place when a buyer meets a seller. Have you ever watched two people meet and each thought that they were there to sell? Every now and then it happens. It's weird. Somebody introduces you and says, oh, you two should really meet. And you think to yourself, well, the only possible reason for this is that my friend is introducing us because he knows this other guy is introducing me to wants what I'm selling. The problem is the other guy thinks exactly the same thing. So you're both desperately trying to find chinks in the conversation where you can insert your little sales pitch and you're both so busy selling to each other, you don't hear a thing. It's like two men trying to make a baby. It just does not happen. The, um, you you know, look, um, imagine you, uh, you could clone yourself all right, assuming for the moment that I could persuade myself that the world needed another Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Um, So let's say that I I had to spend the evening with my clone. How interesting would that be? Um, Well, not at all, because the first thing I would start off by saying is say, hey, nice to meet you. Um, What do you do for a living? He says, well, I think you know. Uh, Yeah, I guess. And then uh, he says, by the way, I heard a funny joke I want to tell you, and I interrupt him, and I say, yeah, I know. I, I know it already, right? Nothing can happen with your clone. And so when you, when you want to start a business, uh, it's always a good idea to start with a partner rather than to do it all by yourself, because the percentage of businesses that fail, that are sole proprietorships or sole operators, is much higher than the percentage of businesses that fail that are run by two partners. Why? Because generally speaking, um, people get together and if they are different from one another, as men are from women, then they're going to be able to see different aspects of the business and they're liable to do much better right? Everybody knows that men are, are genetically closer to whales than they are to women. It's it's like a totally different species. So a man and a woman can engage in the act of utmost creativity. But um, if two men or a man and a woman or two women get together as business partners, you want people are very different from each other. Why it's um, th- This is why it's very common, right? For two partners to structure a business where one of them is very good at writing code or producing widgets the other one is very good at selling the inside person and the outside person somebody just really loves working in a machine shop turning out little stainless steel widgets and his partner he doesn't like doing that he likes being out there selling them it's an ideal partnership because they're different from one another That's how that works. It's important to get it. So is it possible for two men to be creative? Well, yes, in business, not in making a baby, obviously, but um, two men or two women. Sure, as long as at any given moment, one of them is playing the male role and one is playing the female role. What am I talking about? Well, it's very simple, right? A man puts out a seed and a woman receives it and nurtures it and brings into reality something that until then lay dormant as a hidden potential. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Right? I could be talking biologically or I could be talking conceptually in business. When somebody conceives of a good idea, right, you note the word we use, um, It's a conception. What a great concept, because it's understood that making a baby is the same as creating a business. Potential has to be planted. And so what does it mean to have male and female interactions, even though it's two men or two women? So, um, you know, it's simple. Have you ever had the experience of talking to someone and you just know, you're 100% sure that while you're talking to them, their mind is focused on what they're going to say next. You know, when they, when they talk to you, they're not listening. Listening is a tremendous skill. That's why God gave us two ears and only one mouth. It's hard to listen. You have to put out twice as much effort into hearing than you do into talking. That's why that, um, that like even right now, is much harder for you than it is for me you are listening. That's hard. And so for a a creative conversation to take place, one of the people has to be putting out the seed of an idea, and the other person, regardless of their biological gender, has to be receiving the idea. And, um, and, and, then they switch, right? A moment later, when the one person stops putting out his ideas finished, then it switches, and he goes into listen mode, female mode, receiving mode, and the other person, male or female, says, uh, biologically male or female, but now acting male, says, okay, well, um, yeah, I so I, I catch your idea, but what worries me is if we try and do it first in an international marketplace, we're going to fall on our faces, whereas if we first okay now oh I see, okay, I, I get your point, all right. And and here's here's the best part. In the same way that men find a truly receptive woman to be wildly stimulating and exciting, in a business conversation a person who is trying to put out a concept finds it incredibly stimulating if you are a receptive listener. That enhances his ability. It enhances his effort. And so how a negotiation or a sales meeting or a transaction or a deal of any kind takes place depends very much on making sure that you retain this matrix of male-female equals creativity. And learning that, regardless of whatever your gender is, you, regardless of your biological gender, you learn to be an extremely effective receiver, just as we're all accustomed to be trained to be effective givers. Well, we all we all talk about, you know, learn to speak, and and it's all very important. But learning to listen makes the interaction that much more effective. Now, please understand that um, I am making a connection between male-female relationships and financial relationships. And I'm speaking about the creativity, the ultimate creativity of making a baby and connecting it to the creativity of making money or effecting a transaction. Note that both cases involve two separate human beings becoming connected with one another. Either through the structure of making a family, or through the structure of making money, making a transaction, and uh, also please know that it is not my intention in any way to be vulgar, um, or to or to be um, <clears throat> provocative, or for or for the uh, the, the the topic to make the show difficult to listen with children. I don't mean to do any of that at all, but what I'm talking about is everything that comes out of the good book, right? This is literally from the beginning of Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy and elsewhere. These fundamental points keep coming across, and um, if if you are studying, scrolling through scripture with me, or if you are studying verse by verse through the Bible with anybody with an emphasis on the original Hebrew, um, then every now and then something will pop up and you'll say, oh yeah, now I get it because family and finance are connected. So when the Bible teaches certain fundamental principles, yes, they apply to both. So, I've I've told you two, right? Uh, one is that you can't create alone. You have to interact with other people. Number two, that the other person you create with has to be different from you. And then um, the third one is that the act of creativity is incredibly pleasurable. Okay? It's just, it's really fun. And no more really need to be said on one side of that. On the financial side um when you actually are able to say to somebody yeah um we have a deal uh we can agree to that there's a beauty and a delight and a thrill in that as well you've brought something into being that wasn't there yesterday whether it's uh, uh um it's a piece of land development you've been involved in or whether it's uh, the sale or purchase of a car or whatever, or a service, you know. Uh, I mean, gosh, you know. As a young person, if you if you get a job babysitting, or uh, somebody says I'll pay you this much to mow my lawn, and you say it's a deal, there's something really lovely about that. It's enjoyable, and so we do have to sort of understand uh, exactly what's going on there, and uh, and that there's something very real about all of this that we're that we're getting the hang from that we're getting the hang on so uh, <clears throat> then the, uh, the 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 thir- right second is pleasurable the third um, the, the third is that it's pleasurable I said first is you need another person second the other person has to be different from you can't be a clone of you the third is it's pleasurable uh, the fourth is that you have to focus, on the pleasure of the other person. And again, on the biological front, I'm not going to dwell on this because there's not a man on earth uh, or a married man on earth who doesn't understand how important his partner's pleasure is to him. And all we've got to understand is that exactly the same principle applies in business. It applies in finance. You focus on your desire for profit, you focus on your wish to make the money, you focus on your emphasis on your own interests, you get absolutely nowhere. Customer service. Focus on the pleasure of the other party. Right, this is, this is a remarkable thing, and it's absolutely true in business. You find ways to make the experience pleasurable for the other person. And you're on your way to a deal. Uh, you know, you think about the success of Amazon, right? You, you don't need me to tell you how easy Amazon makes it to buy something on their website, they keep your uh, delivery address, or they give you a choice of delivery addresses, whichever one you've ever used. They give you a choice of your payment methods. Uh, they, at any time, you can look and see if you've already bought this thing before. Um, you know, I could list a dozen more things that Amazon does that makes you smile, and, and you say to yourself, and boy, they really make this easy for me, right? That is how it works that is the idea, and um, I wanted to give a charitable donation um, the other day, and uh, the other day, two days ago, and um, you know how I, they wouldn't, they, they, there was no place on, I expected it to be a button on the website, click here, and then it lets me say if I want to, how much, what credit card I want to use, It's all of the, no, uh, this one made it very hard, and um and They said, "You you send us an email telling us how much you want to give." Fine, you know, I did it because I thought to myself, "Not doing so is is me being small and petty." If I well, if you're going to make it hard for me. I'm not going to give you the money. So I thought, no, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna swallow my mild annoyance at this, and uh, I'm gonna go ahead. So I did. I, I sent them an email saying, uh, "I'd like to give you a hundred dollars," and. Uh, and just let me know how to do that. And you know, a, a day later, uh, I got an email back saying, "Yes, you can use Zelle, or you can use the other, you can use PayPal." Okay, fine. And so I was able to, to do the transaction. But um, I just thought to myself, "Gosh, I, I, you know, I hope whoever is whoever's in charge of that charity is not trying to create a business as well, because that's not the way." Uh, the the this, this fourth rule is you've got to focus. Uh, yes, it's a pleasurable activity to be creative, but focus on the pleasure of the other party of your customer, if you like, on a business front. And then finally, we come to uh, the fifth and final principle, um, the fifth and final principle of the ways in which family and finance are so closely connected. Um, let's let's think about it for a moment. Right, I I spoke about how. Uh, Uh, A man and a woman conceive a baby, and that's this incredible act of creativity, and um, it it was a very special moment, and then they go through pregnancy, and, you know, there's a certain amount of a little discomfort, a little bit of throwing up in the morning, but for the most part... pregnancy is a a kind of a nice time women particularly uh, many women really enjoy being pregnant and they're buying baby carriages and sharing the good news with family you know it's a pretty nice nine months and if you didn't know what was coming you didn't know anything about what lay ahead Uh, let's say you were like um, Adam and Eve right the first couple and uh and you just thought, wow, this is, this is great. You know, the conception was beautiful, and these nine months are beautiful. And so the actual birth is, is going to be like this fantastic, incredible, lovely moment. It's, it's going to be a party. It's going to be so much fun. And um, then you actually, in real life, you come to the birth. And this is actually only slightly less traumatic for the man than it is for the woman. Never in the history of human endeavor does a man feel so helpless as being at the birth of his baby. Never is a man so blamed for all the problems. It's so painful, and as the husband, you cannot do a single thing there, there, darling, let me help you with your breathing. Ah, go to hell. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, gosh, there's nothing the guy can do. Uh, The pain is so awful that very often women say, that's it, never again. And you get to understand that, right? Men just don't know how bad it is. How about the effect on the baby? It's pretty rough, you know. The baby gets scrunched and squeezed, Um, and it, it can take a while. It's not simple. But now, on the other hand, how about a cesarean baby? Snip, snip, smile, slap the tush, and away you go. Everybody should do cesareans. There's only one problem, and that is that somehow the health scores you know the AGBAR scores, right? If you've had kids, you know what AGPAR stands for. Those scores are, are actually lower for cesarean babies than they are for other babies. Babies born vaginally have better health scores. Now, you know, overwhelmingly, they catch up and cesarean babies make up for it afterwards. But the initially, the health situation of a cesarean baby uh, is not as good. Shouldn't it be the reverse a little baby who has spent, you know, the last six hours being squeezed and battered and pushed and shoved, that baby should come out of there with real problems, right? Let alone psychiatric trauma. The baby that just gets snipped out, that should be simple. Welcome to normality. No, it's not like that at all. You know, um, a story that uh, I tell quite often is, as a kid, I used to keep silkworms. Now, I have not seen silkworms. I don't know for for many years, uh, and I'll tell you a story that really happened. Um, Silkworms—they're like these little caterpillars. They spin silk. I think they're Chinese in origin. They feed on mulberry trees, which we used to have in our garden. And I kept a whole bunch of uh, of um, silkworms in a big box, and the life cycle is fairly quick. So for a little kid, it's amazing to watch you put cardboard shapes, you know, and I'd put in a heart or a rectangle, and then you put silkworms on those shapes, and over the course of a few days, they spin a whole beautiful little silken fabric in in the shape of whatever piece of cardboard I'd put them on. It's, it's really neat, and um, I I was handing out all these little things to aunts and uncles. And then when the spinning reached a certain point, the silkworm starts spinning a cocoon around itself. This little caterpillar wraps itself completely in what turns out to be a fairly hard shell. And uh, it's almost like an eggshell type thing. And this worm locks itself in there. And uh, and a certain amount of time goes by and eventually the thing starts moving and fluttering and and you watch a tiny little hole being cut in this little thing called a cocoon um or chrysalis maybe and then out of that starts pushing a thin little limb and more starts breaking away and it takes a long while and then it takes a rest and then it keeps going it's painful to watch it's almost like seeing a little chick break out of an eggshell but it seems almost more painful it did to me as a kid anyway and um uh and then out comes a moth and then this moth comes out and it can sort of take two hours because it comes out wet and bedraggled and it's got to straighten out its wings and then starts that part of the cycle. And eventually the moth lays eggs and out of the legs hatch worms. And out of the world, these worms produce silkworms and everything. Well, so I, I got this great idea as a little kid. You know, I really like these silkworms. I had visions of becoming a silk tycoon. Um, if I could just get enough of these worms making silk for me. And uh, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, they're wasting a lot of time and energy cutting their way out of the cocoon, right? It's terrible. So I took a tiny little nail scissors and um, a little fine scissors, and I started, when they were ready, when they started moving and shaking, and I could tell they were starting ready uh, for the moths to come out of the cocoon, I started cutting until I'd cut a hole. So the butterfly and the moth was able to, to just... Uh, um pop right out you know guess what all of those that I helped died I remember going to my mom and saying I don't get this I was just trying to help (laughs) and she said yeah most of your problems come from just trying to help but uh, but then she said you can't improve on God's system God set it up that in order for this incredible transformation to take place there has to be a struggle in order for a baby to emerge there has to be a struggle when you try and eliminate the struggle, you don't help the process, you hurt it. You want a business to emerge? Be ready for a struggle. Embrace the struggle. It's one of the most creative transformations possible. Build a business. It's great, but it takes a struggle. And you've got to be willing to deal with the struggle. You've got to see the struggle as part of the whole process. Part of what you take delight and joy in. Forcing your way through and breaking out. It does take trouble. It takes pain. It takes struggle and trouble and strife. Yeah, that's exactly how the world really works. And that is why the theme of the show is the happy warrior. Because we not only recognize that life isn't supposed to be about fun and entertainment and leisure But life is a struggle. It's a joyful struggle. And becoming a happy warrior means making yourself happy. You remember a a little while ago, I read you a letter from a special forces guy in the danish navy right the navy of denmark and he's stationed with six other guys on a tiny little place in the in the north of greenland or somewhere it's it was an amazing letter well as it turns out he wrote back i wrote to him we've actually exchanged three or four uh emails since then he and his future wife is they're just such fascinating people and um he uh, He told me something about his wife. She wrote to me his future wife she 's at the moment his fiance they 're going to get married when she turns eighteen and Yes, I encourage it strongly uh, in their case because they 're not little boys and not a little boy and a little girl It's a man and a woman, young man and a young woman and they 're an impressive couple. Uh, I really do enjoy reading everyone 's letters by the way, so uh, remember you just go to rabbi daniel dot com and there's a place where it says about us, right? Like there is on every website. And under that is contact us. And uh, that's exactly what Caleb in Greenland did and what Nia did in Greenland. And that's how I got to hear from them. Anyway, the reason I tell you all this is that um, uh, Nia, this, this young woman uh, who's going to marry Caleb in a year and a half, um, she has a practice, a habit. Every morning, she stands in front of the mirror and laughs, She makes herself laugh and she does that for, uh, you know, for a few seconds until it starts getting natural. And she says she does that because it makes her happy and it lets her start off the day not in a grumpy mode, but in a happy mode. Brilliant. I've never heard of this before, but it's so good. I even tried it myself the other morning, and she's absolutely right. You feel a bit of an idiot, you know, sort of laughing at yourself in the mirror, but after a while, it starts getting genuine. Maybe you're sort of laughing at the ridiculousness of how you look, but uh, the end result, yeah, happy warriors do that. That's exactly what we're all about. We make ourselves happy at being able to face the struggle. You want to avoid the struggle? Well, that's called dying, but facing the struggle embracing it and finding joy in it is what the happy warrior is all about that's how a baby enters the world and that's how any achievement that we achieve anything we accomplish a business um, a sports triumph or, or anything you can think of struggle is part of it not only expect it but embrace it and that my dear friends my dear happy warriors well, that's as far as we can go today. And so I, your rabbi, wish you a week of great times with your family, with your finances, with your friendships, with your faith, and with your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.